to Big Red Couch, the podcast about making role-playing games. A group of GMs and players draw ideas from the mystery box and bring their game pitches to you. Good evening, listener, and welcome to the Big Red Couch. I'm Craig, and on roughly the other side of the world from me... Has been. How's it going? Pretty good. As we record this, I have worked my first full week of employment for two years, so I'm a bit knackered. I'm not sure of going for an auditum's tiniest violin or burning hatred of a thousand suns. I'm, I'm torn. It's a tricky one, yeah. <laughs> I am effectively complaining that my awesome holiday has ended. Yes, yes, you are. And has ended by me getting what's looking like being a pretty cool job. Yeah, but by finding gainful employment, yeah. Wow, sucks to be you, bro. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sucks to be me, bro. It's the world's tiniest violin playing oh, boo, fucking who in C-sharp minor. So, we have a card. And upon this, this card is inscribed... The rampant AI was surprisingly helpful. And it comes to us from John Ellison. Also being surprisingly helpful? It is a little bit surprising. <laughs> I have an idea for this, though I started to realise just how heavily influenced by the media I have been watching of late it is. So it's it's hard for me to say that it's entirely my idea. Uh, nothing is created in a vacuum. Let's put it that way. Oh, shut up, cat. <laughs> I'm assuming that uh, the cat is disagreeing with you on the grounds of uh, the quantum foam virtual particles being created and uh, destroyed in a vacuum. No, she's just sitting on an ottoman in the middle of the lounge, wake up for no good reason and is complaining bitterly about it. <laughs> that was going to be my second guess, if, if the first guess concerning the, the deep relationship cats have with quantum physics was incorrect. So your idea is... Grotesquely derivative, but... Yeah, it's never stopped us before, so I see no reason why it should stop us this time. Indeed. How about you? Or did you want me to go first? And... My idea definitely has touchstones of things that of games I've played in the past, and games I hope to play in the future. So, I don't know if that's derivative or not. Hmm. Possibly, probably, yeah. So, we are talentless hacks. Go us. Indeed. Hey, at, least, at least we embrace that. Hmm. We are not denying it, despite there being recordings of us saying it. Let, let us not speak of people saying things will be done and then not doing them and then saying they were never going to do them. Yeah. Because that just leads to madness. Pretty much. Shall I kick off? Please do. Okay. So this one does involve the, the dear old generation ship idea, but it's been a while since I've thrown that one out there, so I feel it's valid. That, that's not like not being a hack, it's being a total cliche, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, when you were giving that warning, I thought that was just a general sort of self-deprecation thing, not no, no, no. It was a specific, actual... It was a specific and actual uh, disclaimer. No, sorry, that amuses me more than it should because yes, the the notion of us trying sort of doing a ding big red couch trope account. <laughs> if this was a YouTube channel, I'd just be putting a, an incremental number on the screen at this point. I mean, we could look at doing that at some point. I do have a copy of Microsoft Movie Maker, so yeah, yeah that's all you need, apparently. I, I started off with my usual thing of just, okay, let, let's see what the word rampant actually means. There's basically ubiquitous, or there's standing on its hind legs. Okay. As in, and yeah, ubiquitous, okay, you could maybe do stuff with sort of an intelligent grey goo scenario, or some of the ideas that we'd had based on the show Revolution. 
But where I decided to go with it for a gaming purpose was somewhat heavily informed by the movie Passengers and by the show Dark Matter and by a few other things. Okay. And basically the idea, if you've got a colony spaceship of some sort, it's crashing through the universe. Hopefully not literally. On its way to a destination. And along the way, it's effectively picking up things it happens to, sort of astronomically speaking, run into. The passengers and cargo and crew of the ship are in stasis or cold sleep or whatever. So what you've got is a ship that's maybe a very large structure or maybe it's a hollowed out asteroid with an ecosphere inside it. It is large enough to have a functioning ecology happening and the various people that the ship has rescued along the way will essentially find themselves released into this environment. Okay. The rampant AI bit basically came about from imagining that you've got this ecosphere that somebody has set up when they set the ship going on the grounds that it's a useful thing to have, it generates oxygen, it sort of keeps the systems running, so to speak, a bit like the air forest or oxygen forest from that Doctor Who episode. Mm-hmm. People from all sorts of environments find themselves dumped into this thing as they get picked up by this ship traveling along. Shades of Stargate Universe, I guess. Like I said, it's a bit of a klepto idea. Mm. Liked the idea that there are artificially intelligent systems running things, but the ones that are actually interacting with people, kind of the public access, public information systems that interface via statuary. There's a statue in the town square. That's the AI interface. It's not in everybody's house. If you want to go and ask something, that's where you go. Mm, yeah, I'm getting it. It's, it's, it's almost like, like a, a shrine, not quite. Yeah, if it was a Star Trek episode, you could easily make it a shrine. Maybe if the PCs aren't the first people to arrive there, it's treated as a shrine. The reason I reference passengers is that, and some of this may constitute a spoiler, so you've been warned. For a lot of that film, there was at least a question in my mind as to the motives of the computer system, as there were a couple of moments where you could interpret what the various bots on the ship are telling our protagonist in some very different and much creepier ways. Mm. And so, depending on how you wanted to take a game under the circumstance, you can have, if you go with the rescued in the nick of time... A bunch of people on a ship that was coming apart around them that suddenly find themselves scooped up and the wreckage of their ship is sort of deposited into a clearing in a forest in this hollowed out asteroid world. Possibly they wake up out of uh, hibernation to discover themselves in a place completely unlike anything they expected. It almost doesn't matter, but you need some sort of explanation. At least the crux of the game I would run is that... This system is is doing okay, but there's something wrong. Maybe the AI doesn't 100% understand what it is. Maybe the first part of the game is trying to convince the AI that there is actually a problem. But then you've got people very much stuck in the part of the ship that was never intended to have anybody in it unsupervised, was never intended to have anybody in it who was then trying to get to other bits of the ship. Yeah, it's a little bit of a a prison escape scenario. So it's not quite a Garden of Eden kind of sort of situation. There's this perfectly pleasant, happy place that you have to be stuck. Yeah, 
Okay. I mean, I like the idea that sort of wandering around, you might find the remains of the settlement that got built by some other people who got there, figured, well, okay, this is better than being dead in the wreckage of our spacecraft, and just kind of hung around and eventually died out, or eventually went somewhere else. You know, you could do the creepy message carved into a tree thing. One or two of the buildings of the village are squashed flat. It obviously happened a very long time ago, so nobody ever came back, but... Clearly somebody survived it enough to carve a message into a tree before they left. Where did they go? Mm. Some reason I'm getting a very Miyazaki fantasy feel out of that. I mean, I've got a host of things to reference. Uh, the Greg Bear book Hull Zero Three is probably a good one to reference as well, because that has person shorn of memory wandering around a spacecraft that they simply don't understand. But exactly how you did it would very much depend on what sort of game the players were after. You could have a tremendous amount of fun with the planet of the week. If this is some sort of ship that, for whatever reason, is capable of traveling very, very quickly between systems, but does tend to slow down in system for long enough for people to come and visit. I mean, it's a bit space. And 1999, yeah. It's a bit Star Trek Voyager. Yes. The mysterious gravity curve drive, where there, you know, where there's, no, there's no planets nearby, travels at the speed of um, commercial break. It then slows down conveniently when it's ruined past. I was wondering also, you were talking about sort of catching up stragglers or something, and the idea that, you know, maybe there is this interstellar gold rush. They found an exoplanet, and they had determined without a, a shadow of a doubt that it's, you know, mostly habitable, but there is an element there that is just, it's the, the equivalent of gold. Maybe, you know, it might just be you know, untainted water or oxygen or whatever it is. It is the unobtainium from Avatar. It is hot sex as far as the elemental table goes. So... The very first people will scrap together something that will travel interstellar distance. Leave as soon as they can. The next slot go, and they're getting like 2% better speed out of their drive, so they're going to get there slightly earlier. And then the next slot go with a slightly more efficient ship, because, you know, whoever's there is there first. At some point, they're approaching sea. It's still decades away. At some point, you're going to have all of these um, ships strung out, and maybe it just becomes necessary... At some point, they identify there's some sort of calamity. The Earth is lost, but there is this collector coming along the string of Pac-Man dots, collecting the the remnants of humanity or people who've all left for this shining beacon. So you've got a 200-year-long line of people that are all that's left. Nice. And that could be where the the AI thing comes from, because to accidentally find travellers to distant stars... Very, very unlikely. Vanishingly unlikely. The only way I can make that work is if the the hollowed out asteroid ship was set off by some alien race. We have no idea why. So shades of fire on the deep in there. And they've got some jump drive that just makes no sense. You know, if you've got sort of astrographic charts made by the various races along the way, and it's just every time we come out, we are somewhere different. We don't know why. There doesn't seem to be any relationship between how far we've moved and how long we jump for. The course makes no sense. We've seen the, the center of the Milky Way from five different directions at this point, and we still have no idea what the destination is. At that point, it's the MacGuffin of the story. It's the thing that you can never explain. Yes, the notion that if you're actually collecting a bunch of strays and you knew that they were all going in one direction, you'd have a hope of finding them by some slightly more conventional means. You'd still want the most upgraded version, but 
Mm. Yeah, you won't be able to track them down. That would be, you know, that would be an interesting thing. You have generations of folks who left the Earth going, aha, we all blaze a trail into the stars to get this thing that we need so very badly and discover by the time they get there, it's like, eh, it's not as, you know, useful anymore. And, you know, the fact that, that you were surviving members of the human race is way, way more relevant. Yeah. Way more important at this stage in the piece. Yeah, I think we discussed the possibility of having sort of sequential colony drops it being part of a plot of a of a role playing game. It may have come up in space wreck exploration. It was the whole thing of once yep. you develop FTL, if you've already sent off sleeper ships or generation ships, what do you do with those people who are in transit to a place that's already been inhabited for two hundred years? I did kind of like the idea that the the, the space nineteen ninety nine idea that your ship was your ecology, your environment, and you know it rises the what's the, the the star drive thing where you just basically make your your sun slightly lopsided and it's like out of the way fools. Shadow thruster. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, where you're basically you're driving a solar system. Depending on your time scales, that's very effective. Not as flashy. People like mistake you for a rogue star. Yeah, but you know, you can bring everything you you need and have with you. You can bring all of your stuff. Well, you might you might leave little sort of chunks of Oort cloud behind, but depends on the speed of the thing. But yeah, you you're going to be leaving a trail of Oort cloud for some time, <laughs> possibly for all time, depending on the size of the dratted thing. You want to uh, apply pressure to the accelerator pretty gently. On the other hand, you could have the moment of what was that? Hey, turns out that Nemesis thing was right after all. Bye. <laughs> in terms of plot if i was going with the planet of the week approach then it's effectively an opportunity to have a ensemble cast of just weirdos picked up from all across the universe so like voyager looked like it was going to be in the first couple of episodes but then wasn't if i was going with the there is something really wrong here option then It'd be rather more of the mystery approach where people wake up in the wreckage of their ship in a clearing in a ship that could never have landed and they're inside an asteroid anyway and there are sort of robotic systems that will talk to them but there is something wrong here and make it a little bit more of a mystery of figuring it yeah maybe figuring out what is going on. Where is our planet of solid gold? We were promised a planet of solid gold. Mm. My filthy impulse would be basically make the way they start to be Port Merlion from The Prisoner. The idea of the slightly fake-looking statuary and this twee little environment that's been set up for them by this helpful um, system that is just totally unconvincing and a wee bit creepy. Yeah. Yeah, for system, I'm not sure what I'd use. Depends what you were planning to do, I guess. If you want to make it sort of a heavy, sort of simulationist kind of survival thing, whatever, crunch-tastic thing, you know, it's got rules for drowning and dehydration and heat exposure and, you know, all sorts of... Twilight 2000. Yes. Or, you know, not. Depends what your focus are, especially if they're going to be twiddling knobs on tricorders and so forth and trying to figure out what's going on using science. Well, using regular science, not science science. Yeah, you could do something with the atomic robo-system pretty easily. I do wonder whether you could do something using the Pilgrain system from Trail of Cthulhu and Time Watch. If it made sense that you were narrowing down to the core of a mystery, I don't know if that would work so much if you were kind of discovering a world. Yeah, if there's a mystery going on. So yeah, if you were going with the hardcore, there is something wrong here. Yeah, you could potentially have fun. You go with the rampant AI is surprisingly helpful. What if the other AIs aren't? 
Mm. You know, if there's not one system controlling the whole thing, that you know, what you're dealing with is the AI that is passenger information, for want of a better word, deals with people who have gotten lost and you know, has some limited control over environmental stuff, but doesn't actually know where the ship is going, can't unlock the right. bloody great doors... Yeah, there are separate AIs, or the AI is internally compartmentized so that you've been dealing with, you know, the one that will raise and lower the lights and the temperature and keep you comfy and, you know, help you in these very, very sort of limited basic ways. Mm. And then you, you go, aha, we found a panel, we've tried it off, and now we're in the engineering section. It's like, all right, okay, put the lights on, so we're not going to get murdered by that thing with the buzz saw of the hands. It's like, oh, I have no control here. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Should we run for our lives? Yes, let's. <laughs> yes. That would be interesting. It's kind of a pantheon of AI gods, which I'm sure we've done before. But the notion that you are best buds with a slightly annoying, smothering half-god, and suddenly realise that you actually have to take on the god of the of the forge and the god of war. <laughs> and you've got to start with the most helpful and cooperative one. Has certainly the least offensive power. Yeah. You could have a lot of fun with it being helpful and wants you to be happy and wants you to settle down and definitely doesn't want you to try climbing through those ducts over there and is really trying to stop you from doing so and it turns out the reason is that because nobody who's ever climbed through those ducts came back in one piece but there was this fine mist that came out a while later with a distinct biological component to it but it doesn't actually want to say that oh no because that would cause a panic Mm. discord and and panicking is just as dangerous Mm. the flip version of that the ubiquitous rampant AI is, was surprisingly helpful. I mean, what came immediately to mind with that was some of the musings on the TV show Revolution, where we discover that there's nanotech everywhere and it's been eating all the electricity and whatever. And just the question of, if it was some sort of health-based thing initially, what happens when you have an entire population that is kicked back to pre-electrical times, but has health nano running around in their system that can basically cure anything that doesn't kill you in about five minutes. Right. You're dealing with an age of godlings, but... Godlings without batteries. Yeah, yeah. So these people can do all these these crazy things. And presumably the stories of, you know, warriors of old being, you know, these mighty champions. is because, you know, somebody had to have survived all these fights. And presumably they're very, very talented mm. and have had plenty of practice. Because everything, everyone they practiced on died of an infection or something like that. It would be an opportunity to just go absolutely bananas uh, from a setting because you've got a circumstance where if the sword stroke doesn't do damage that's going to kill you in a few minutes, you will heal from it. So you know, if you're going to kill somebody, you're going to have to do some very major damage and you can't nickel and dime this shit. But I don't really have a scenario for that other than, hey, take revolution, cross it with into the Badlands and, I don't know, use Wushu. That is the scenario, effectively. Yeah, I think there was uh, a series like Land Fit for Heroes or something. Philip Mann? Yeah, yeah, it was kind of a... There's also something for Richard K. Morgan, it seems to come up. I think I read at least one of those, yeah, and there was a distinct Roman vibe to it, but there were also... There were also robots. Yes, it's one I should go back to, because I'm pretty confident I didn't get it at the time. It wasn't the most getting of books, I think. It just was. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm mad keen for his Master of Paxwax and for the Families one, Pioneers as well. They did some 
Radio New Zealand some brilliant radio plays for those ones. Yeah, Landfit for Heroes, yes. Business Alternatives, the Roman Empire never fell in Christianity and even became more than a minority cult. Hmm. Yes, there's also wacky old history, plus, you know, there was just random robots and science fiction-y stuff in there as well. That could be a, a an interesting setting. I think it would get a bit Exalted-flavoured, to that a degree. That would be the downside, yeah. I mean, the, People out there love Exalted. Somebody finds the handle on a mountain range, picks it up and hits somebody with it, because it turns out it was a diclave the entire time. Well, yes, exactly. Or was it the game where Chuck Norris fights Bruce Lee while they're standing on the top of a speeding train and they're both dual-wielding electric guitars that are on fire? I think the most canonical description I have heard is that it is Moses leads the Israelites into the desert, where they train in burning bush kung fu style, come back and kick the ass of the pharaoh. I would watch that movie. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's more of a setting that you've got there. Yeah, that one's a setting, it's not a game, I suspect. At the point at which you've got your legion of followers with burning bush style kung fu about to kick over pyramids on top of the pharaoh, the game is pretty much whatever you decide to make it at that point. I think you've already made a decision, for better or worse, that point has, has been... That That is true, yeah. If that's the result of an unexpected dice roll, I question the validity of your simulation, but... Yeah. You do you. Clatter. And we've inadvertently toppled the Empire. Hmm. Awkward. Oh. Yeah, that's it. We are not sending you down to buy pastries ever again. That is the kind of stupidity I've never heard of in a role-playing game before. Something where critical failures or critical successes change the genre of the game. Ooh. That might be the worst idea we've come up with. We should workshop this. I mean, that, no, that would be a bad idea. We should not workshop, we should totally workshop this. Audience, back me up here. <laughs> Immersion breaking the role-playing game. It's success. I've just punched our adversary into a Scooby-Doo cartoon. Quickly, follow him. <laughs> Shades of some of the theatre sports, thank goodness you're here, sort of thing, where the genre changes somewhat with every new character on the scene. Yes, yes, that could be... Okay, I can see you doing it as, as a one-off comedy game where, yeah, every every time somebody gets a critical success, they get to choose the new genre, and they do have to. Every time there's a critical mm. failure, the GM gets to choose it. I think you'd lay out some cards so people can, you know, okay, we're transferring to this genre now. The, the GM kind of cackling evilly is like, you failed to pick the lock of the tomb of blah, blah, blah. It's like, oh, shit. <laughs> It could be kind of, it's an idiotic sort of fun, but it could be fun. And if you could come up with a way where the, the change in genre wasn't 100% obvious. So yeah, if you've got the heist crime story thing with, okay, we're picking the lock, we're picking the lock. Somebody gets a critical fumble. Okay, so there's a snap and the stone golem guards come in. Really? In Vegas? Yes, but you are in the Luxor, so they are Egyptian themed. Yes, yeah. they blend perfectly with the scenery. It is basically space Egypt. <laughs> it's a giant black glass pyramid in the desert with faux Egyptian shit everywhere. I think my manager recently commented that you think of the actual pyramids in Egypt being the lonely monoliths in the desert, but there's actually like a strip mall and fast food franchises right next to them. It is in fact the complete opposite in Las Vegas with this. Water all bugger all in these casinos stuck in the middle of nowhere. Pretty much, yeah. Casinos that link to other 
casinos. I think I could go through two different casinos from the Luxor without ever actually having to go outside. Which is, of course, something you want to avoid at all costs. It was a bit warm, yeah, and getting out of the airport in Las Vegas was a little bit like standing directly in front of a pizza oven without the possibility of garlic bread. <laughs> all right. I think we've covered off the possibilities of... The rampant AI. The travelling circus, not quite. The travelling biome. The circus part only came up when we decided that, you know, you could switch... Actually, I think that if you were doing a genre-swapping game, you'd have a bunch of genre tiles laid out with rules and a flavour thing to it. But when people attempted to take actions, if they succeeded, they could put tokens on the genre they wanted. And if they failed, the GM would put tokens on the slightly more deprotagonizing, terrifying ones, and they'd slowly increment. When you switched to it, you'd clear off the tokens and then you'd prepare to move to the next one. So you could carefully time your escape from the horror scenario to the swashbuckling scenario if you were clever. Nice. Rather than just be having arbitrarily when the dumb dice decided because, you know, dice are dumb. That's an interesting one. I do like the idea of sort of, okay, we need to get a couple of more onto the wacky hijinks card and a few less on the splatter horror card before we attempt this next bit. Oh, no, we want to back off on the wacky hijinks just for the moment. Hit splatter horror, then go hard for wacky hijinks so we spend as little time as possible there. It's a bit metagamey, but at this stage, I think you have crossed that line and are heading for the sunset. Yeah, metagamey is a long way behind you. Nice. Okay, so as far as my contribution goes, so the rampant AI was surprisingly helpful. I've been vaguely aware of things that people have been doing, like at the Boston Dynamics um, laboratories. Have you seen their latest robot? Yes. The one that has wheels for feet and scoots around like it's permanently wired for sound. The bot that can jump up things and over things and lift boxes and... Just glide around. It made me think very much of a Cliff Richard movie video from like the very early 80s or late 70s where roller skating was the big thing. The entire thing was people were zooming past the camera during the music video. It was almost certainly wired for sound. What do I... Why do I know these things? What, what is wrong with me as a person? Where did I go wrong in my life? <laughs> People are keenly touting the idea of robotic helpers for the elderly. Mm-hmm. I've also been watching a video on the paradox of the AI stop button. Basically, it's a bit of bit of a thought experiment, a cognitive toy, effectively, where you say, all right, I've got my robot. It's a good robot. It does what I ask it to. I'd like it to make a cup of tea. So I say, okay, you give, you give priority to the tea-making set of tasks. And it knows how to do this thing. It knows how to do this relatively complex action. However, say there's a baby between it and the tea-making facilities, and it's got huge black metal feet. You want to be able to prevent it from crushing said baby. Yes. You give it a button, a big red shiny button, like you would give an industrial robot or any sort of industrial machine. If you give it a higher priority to the button, and the robot has access to press the button itself, what happens... So it has access to its own don't do that button. Yes. And if you set the priority for the button higher than the T, what happens? It presses the button. If it has a lower priority, it steps on the baby. Okay. If it doesn't have access to the button, like you put it on its back or something and its, its limbs just don't work that way, and the button is the high priority, it figures the best way to make you press the button or it backs onto a wall or something. If it doesn't have a higher priority, it steps on the baby. Okay. I, thus far, this is sounding like a very weird game of Robo Rally. Oh, yeah, yeah. There, there are fewer babies in Robo Rally, but 
that's a very simplified version. The idea is that if your general AI understands the environment at all and is aware of the fact there is a wait to stop all actions shut down, if it supersedes everything else, it will try and make that happen. If it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. So what the hell? And yes, the, the complexity of making the concept of corrigibility. You need to be able to correct the behavior of an AI because you aren't going to be directly programming it because either you sit there trying to patch every single exception to this is a good robot, no, except don't do this, except don't do this, except don't do this, except don't do this, to something that can go through possibilities way faster than you can. Possibilities, if you obfuscate that too much, the robot's going, ah, if I don't behave, they'll shut me down. And somebody, I think they used the term Volkswagening. It sits there behaving while it's in a testing environment. And the instant you put it outside of a testing environment where it understands it's no longer being tested, well, pretty much it's the wahahaha killer robot scenario, which, you know, is actually more plausible than you'd think. Okay. Because unless you actually build machines that will tell you when they think you are misprogramming them, you are misprogramming them. <laughs> So that's a whole thing. And thinking about that and the idea that one day there may be scads of geriatric role players sitting around trying to set up their D&D 12.7 games, sitting in bath chairs with rugs and so forth behind DM screens or whatever, just to mash up the image. And in, in this vague dystopia, there are a lot of elderly people. They are being very well cared for by the automated systems and robots and so forth that have been built by younger generations who they can no longer relate to whatsoever. I don't know. They've got Bluetooth telepathy in their brains. They're constantly in virtual reality. The old crumblies just don't want any of that. They'll stick to their... Um, their VR headsets. Their low-tech VR headsets and things like that. They are not plugged into the same thing. So there's a distinct rift in society. While people are living longer, health is less of an issue because of advances. Things are going okay, but at some point there is a distinct gap. It's the generation gap between, presumably, the millennials and whoever comes next. It's not quite a scarcely free society, but it's getting close. Things are, are, are quite evenly distributed and so forth, but there is this separation. And the AI helpers and, and systems that are keeping folks healthy and cared for and so forth recognise that activity, leisure activities are important and so forth, but has decided, possibly based on misremembered things of the satanic panic, a la paranoia and so forth, jumbled ideas about communism kind of thing, that role-playing games are dangerous. Maybe people get too excited. Maybe they have shouty arguments. Maybe they step on D4s and, you know, injure themselves. The addition wars are only going to get worse as there are more additions. This is an unavoidable truth. <laughs> well, actually, I've got another 20 years. I don't think anyone will be playing second edition AD&D anymore. The imperfection is theirs. <laughs> I just think all of the, uh, the diehards will have died. died? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm not saying anything against that, that particular game, but, you know, there is a, there's a certain shelf life issue we're working on. <laughs> yeah. Those books are hard to get these days, man. It's not going to... Um... I think I've still got my second Ed Player's Guide and uh, DMG. It, it's going to be hard to refresh that pool of um, enthusiasts, that's for sure. Okay, so you've got robots who are attempting to stop old folks' homes crumblies from playing role-playing games. Yep. So what have they got to do? They've got to take it to the man. They've got to sneak out and play their role-playing games. Okay. And at this point, maybe it's just... This is the, the breaking point. This is the where the strain has become too much and the, the caretaker systems have been let go to develop the rules heuristically for too long. 
and they've stopped making a certain degree of sense. So it is classic espionage, fighting against the authorities, but your rebels are folks who wear pyjamas all day. Interesting. The authority is an overly conciliatory robots with smiley faces plastered on their soft-shelled bodies trying to explain sort of tenderly and carefully, no, you shouldn't be doing that, sir. So we've got elements of the TV show Waiting for God. Yes, definitely, yeah. To a certain extent, elements of Last of the Summer Wine. Oh, definitely, if you want a comedy bent. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how you do this without there being some degree of comedy bent, because... From the one point of view, you're trying to evade your captors. But from another point of view, the only thing your captors can really do is catch up with you, pick you up, and carry you back while tutting. Yes, true. The most fierce of the British rebuke system, but still. <laughs> Maybe the stakes may not seem so high. Yes, making it more grimdark would possibly be a bit, a bit silly. Yeah, I mean, it could be done. It is a fun idea, the sneaking out of the old folks' home in order to... Well, Shades of Cocoon... You could also kind of make it a little bit Fallen Angels as well, if these are... Is that Jerry Pennell? The the secret science fiction club's hiding astronauts. That would be the one, yep. Uh, was it Pennell, Michael Flynn, and... Could have been Larry Niven, or it could have been Stephen Barnes, I'm not sure. I think it was a triple header. Indeed. Well, they don't let Jerry out by himself very much, so... <laughs> there are aspects of it you can look at and say, yeah, that bit was probably Jerry. That would be an interesting one. It would be... I mean, you could do it all grimdark, but it might be quite fun to do it kind of light and not quite fluffy, but gentle. Indeed. And maybe it's it's literally that things have gone too far. No one's in, in particular danger, but it, folks' spirits are being crushed and they feel disenfranchised. And it's up to sneaky, weirdo, older role players who have been developing these skills all their lives to monkey wrench the system and bring some sort of feeling of independence and freedom back. And also the opportunity of doing what is effectively a dungeon crawl, except it's through the poorly understood service areas of the old folks' home, where only the robotic systems go, and you're doing it with walkers and powered scooters. Yes, a dungeon zimmer. The dungeon zimmer. Or possibly the balancing, you know, the more Segway-like balancing chairs that can climb stairs, because that would be quite convenient. Indeed. So, that's as appealing as I'm likely to be able to make that one. I think you mentioned before the recording that you had checked out a local science fiction club? I did. I decided to do the meet-up thing. The town I am in is Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire. There is an Aylesbury science fiction and fantasy meetup because this is the UK they meet in a pub. Inevitably. It's also a very long pub. I mean they did they did mention in the, the meetup invite that, you know, we'll be at the back. Right at the back. It's a really long pub. They weren't kidding. <laughs> it just it seems to be room after room after alcove after room that kind of flow into each other. There's the, the pub organically absorbed a number of nearby buildings and you're just like knocked a vaguely door-shaped hole in the wall and kept going. <laughs> it has that vibe. I mean, it looks as if it was built all in one go, so they actively designed it to be this way. But it's the sort of layout that would make perfect sense if they had knocked through a bunch of different buildings to create the space. So lot, there's lots of nooks and crannies and people can, can socialise quietly. It seems to be the sort of thing that's set up so that you really don't have a space with more than 20 or so people in it. Mm. Which probably makes sense. 
But yes, I, I went along. I mean, this was, they meet once a month. And the first meeting sort of while I was in town was during my first week on the job. Mm-hmm. Having made the mistake before when going to other places for work and not putting enough or in some cases any effort into kind of making social contacts outside of work, I figured I'd try something different this time. So this is me trying something different this time. The opposite of the Perth experience? Kind of, yeah. I mean, I did try to do the sort of more social contact thing in Perth, but then as soon as things got a little bit difficult at the job, I just concentrated fully on the job to the exclusion of absolutely everything else, which in hindsight was what they call in the trade a colossal mistake. Mistake, yeah. Very much a mistake. The mistake guy was out in force. Trying not to do that this time, I did investigate whether there were any organised role-playing meet-up type of things in Aylesbury. Mm-hmm. Not on meet-up. There are in some of the neighbouring towns, though, annoyingly, yeah, there seems to be a, a group that's really close if you have a car. If you don't have a car and we're using the train, you actually need to go into London and back out again. Ah, uh, the whole hub-and-spoke transport system. and I'm sure it's way more sensible than where you are currently, but yes. Yeah, I mean... Getting between the spokes can sometimes be complete bastard. Yeah, well, this town is sort of the second-to-last stop on this line. Right. So if I want to go into London, not a problem. If I want to get here from London, not a problem. If I wanted to go to Oxford, I'd actually need to catch two trains. The one that connects to the line that goes to Oxford, and then go to Oxford. So, you know, it's the oddity of a railway system that was built over a period of time and grew kind of organically, that mm. these things happen. But, yes, I went to this this meetup. Some very nice people. They were very welcoming to the strangely accented guy who showed up more or less out of nowhere. Wore my most generically nerdy shirt to aid in identification. So it's the one with the Doctor Who Gallifreyan writing um, symbol on it, because... Uh, it's either that or a Gen Con t-shirt, and those can be very easily mistaken for fantasy metal. Uh, and the, the Gallifrey thing is that, you know, people in the in the, in the space will, will recognise it, and people will just think, uh, the rest of people will just think it's design of some sort. So, yeah. Fortunately, the guy who runs the meetup actually recognised me from my profile picture, so that was even easier. You can break out the Twilight Spherical uh, t-shirt that time, I'm sure. <laughs> hmm. Maybe let them get used to you first. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if I actually have... No, I do not have that with me. I do not have my um, brony Rainbow Dash shirt with me. Ah, well, you'll have to freak them out some other way. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a way. I mean, there were many questions about Lord of the Rings and the comment <laughs> that I seemed to be the only New Zealander in the UK who hadn't been in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Maybe you need a T-shirt that says, no, I wasn't in Lord of the Rings. Despite how I look, wasn't actually playing an orc or a rider of Rohan in Lord of the Rings. Sorry. Insist you're one of the elves. Pull a figwit. <laughs> yeah, I, I do wonder whether the, the various people who... Oh yes, yeah, almost every New Zealander has been in Lord of the Rings. How many of them are in fact just telling a load of crap? Yes, someone is trying to um, pull someone or... But there are um, the usual assortment of, of geeks and geekly interests. But yes, there's some role players, some fairly keen board gamers. So that at the very least is an encouraging sign for the first week, more or less, in town. 
Awesome. Oh, that's excellent. Well, I hope your adventures there go go swimmingly, and you'll have hopefully provide collateral for the podcast as well, because you might find guests. That's a possibility. That would be that would be entertaining. Yeah, that would, especially for our listener, our poor benighted listeners who listen to us yokels blather on for a, almost a year at this point. Yeah. Yeah, we're sorry. I'm I'm not actually that sorry to be honest. I have sympathy, but I'm not like sorry as such. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry that I'm not sorry. Wait, this is getting... So, with that... Um... Strange, fragmented piece of inform- alleged information. Yes, and, and descent into moribund self-reflection. We should probably... probably means we've run out of content and it's time to sign off. It probably does. I should just check, because I have the vague memory of adding something to our scorekeeping board, uh, for want of a better word, so I thought I would just double-check what it was. I had apparently had a thought for uh, episode 88, because you had suggested something to do with AI advertising bots attempting to communicate with people and this sort of thing. And yes, apparently what it reminded me of was there's a book by Neil Stevenson called The Diamond Age. It's been out for a while, so this still constitutes spoilers. A young woman has a very high-tech storybook that's telling a story, but it's also educating her. And it kind of, it grows along with her. And the script of the thing is written by an AI or an expert system, but it's voiced and acted by somebody in a studio. There is a bit in that book where the reader is in some very serious trouble. The voice actor is aware of this because she's sort of figured it out from context, but the girl herself is not. And so you've got the circumstance where the voice actor can't go off script because if she does, presumably she'll be pulled and a different voice actor will be put in. So she's trying to communicate to the girl that she should stop asking follow-up questions and instead get out of the incredibly dangerous situation by tone and delivery. Okay. How do you communicate, stop asking questions and bloody well run for it with tonal cues? As far as a game was structured, I was wondering if you had a game that you would have a party of subsystems dealing with different things, with different sort of roles, trying to protect the person who is actually not part of the game per se, They're the, the thing they're protecting. So you're playing valiant, like, AI um, agents trying to protect them. Hmm. That's a similar sort of, yeah, another sort of angle on that. All right, well, thank you, listener, for putting up with us for yet another episode. That was 89. The Rampant AI was surprisingly helpful. And if you saw the episode pop up briefly, it was because the Rampant AI set the date wrong, and um, we fixed that as quickly as we could. (laughs) Well, it's goodbye from Ben. And it's goodbye from Craig. We didn't start doing the two Ronnies thing ages ago. We should have started doing the two Ronnies things ages. In particular, there is a statue of Ronnie Barker in Aylesbury. Oh, nice. Very nice. I'll see if I can put a picture in there, because apparently at a theatre here was where he did his first professional performance. Very nice, indeed. So, well, it's, it's good night from me. And it's good night from him. Which makes me Ronnie Corbett. Okay. You do wear <laughs> glasses. I do. I do. <laughs> Good night, everyone. Bye-bye. Want to hear more of our shenanigans? 
Then go to hoarde.net and click on the button that looks like a couch. The Big Red Couch is released under Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported from creativecommons.org. All music on the show comes from the album Universal Fluff Theory by Krakatoa. Visit them at krakatoa.com or follow the link from our page. See you next time.